Hey guys, just a reminder, my online course is Birth Story Academy and you can enroll in it at birthstory.com. It's taught by me. You can be in your jammies. It's online. It's pre-recorded and it has a ton of freebies and downloads. It's everything that you need to prepare for your hospital birth. So hope to see you in Birth Story Academy. I'm going to make this quick because this is a two-part episode and we didn't know that going into it, but Kelly and I had so much to talk about that I decided to break it into two parts. So this episode is part one with Kelly, the labor nurse on Instagram. And at the beginning of the episode, you'll hear a little bit about how we connected on social media. This is a trigger warning episode. So Kelly has had five pregnancies. And in this episode, we talk about her experience as a labor and delivery nurse. We kind of chat. We talk about her first birth nine years ago. And it was, you know, your typical, she really wasn't, I don't know, that prepared, let's say, and ended up having a medicated birth with Pitocin and episiotomy and just the different things. Then Kelly goes on to talk about two miscarriages and losses in detail. I wanted to record this episode because it's very important that I honor all all types of birth, including birth where there is loss and miscarriage, so that you can understand what it's like to miscarry at six weeks, what it's like to miscarry at 11 weeks, and to be able to make informed decisions about things like miscarrying at home, utilizing things like Cytotec, or having a DNC. So this is a trigger warning episode. It is a beautiful episode, but in part two, we are only talking about her rainbow birth stories with Riley and Clayton. So if this episode feels like it wouldn't be safe for you, you can move along to part two and just listen to the birth stories of her rainbow babies. If you are up for that knowledge and learning about what it's like to be kind of unprepared for your first birth, being a labor and delivery nurse, and then getting some education and information around miscarriage, then I would like you to try to listen to this episode. It's very powerful, but they are separated to keep you safe to keep little ones safe if they're listening with you. And you can just skip right over to part two if you just want the rainbow baby birth stories. Okay, let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does the day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, 
I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. I think we can do this, Kelly. Welcome to the birth story podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. You guys, this is Kelly Labor Nurse. <laughs> And I've been following Kelly on Instagram. I really love following labor and delivery nurses because I learn a lot. Like, even though I've been a doula for 20 years, I'm a forever student. And because I didn't do anything medical, I really like seeing like the balance of like what our labor and delivery nurses are doing and what their perspective is and teaching and in birth. And so I found myself constantly just like liking Kelly's posts. And then eventually we connected because... I reached out when she was posting her birth stories and I was like, so we should record these on the podcast. Kelly, tell us what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about some birth stories. Each birth story is completely different. And I think it helps me be a better nurse because I've been experienced with induction. I've been experienced with unmedicated. I had a postpartum hemorrhage. So I feel like it makes me a better nurse, but um, it just... You know, I think it also resonates with people who've been pregnant. So, yeah. Why are you a labor and delivery nurse? So I've actually wanted to be a labor and delivery nurse since I was 16 years old. I want to be that nurse. I want to be that nurse to really just like make a difference in those people's births. And I think I could truly do this. Yeah. Um, okay. But question, but like why, like at 16, what happened? Like you were like, oh, I knew since 16. Did you watch like the business yeah. of being born? Like what, what happened at 16? I don't know. I don't know. It was just, it was the weirdest thing. I, I was a product of the eighties. It was inductions. It was all these things. It was formula feeding. And just one day at 16, I'm like, I want to be a labor delivery nurse. I'm going to breastfeed. I want to have this kind of birth and completely polar opposite of anything I've ever been around. And I said, it just, I don't know what hit. I don't know. I don't know. It just, the bug hit at 16 and it never left. And yeah. I think a lot of our jobs are like callings, right? Like the the bug hit me at 12 and I didn't have language for it at the time. Like I didn't know what a doula Mm -hmm. was, you know, I was serving as a doula at 12 years old when my mom miscarried actually on the floor of our bathroom, one of my siblings. And that's when it was planted and it was like birth work from there on out. And um, you just never know you guys when you're like life callings just going to hit. Yeah, and it re- it really does. And it's so crazy. Like, it truly was meant to be. Uh, it is amazing. And what we do in birth work and what we see is like, it's mind blowing. So yes. Kelly, before we get into your five pregnancies, two losses, so trigger warning, everyone, mm-hmm. we're going to talk about two losses and we're going to talk about strategies for a missed miscarriage because we just don't mm-hmm. do enough talking. And And I tr- really try on this podcast to cover miscarriage and cover what it's going to be like and to cover strategies to help other people who may have a miscarriage that are listening to the podcast. Um, so we're going to talk about your three live births. We're going to talk about your two miscarriages. But before we dig in, I'm like, I'm going to curveball you right now. Can you tell me like your most memorable birth story as a labor and delivery nurse? Oh man, so many. It was witnessing my first unmedicated birth because at the teaching hospital, you really don't see that often. And it just, it was this, 
first time mom and we just really, really connected. You get to that point in transition where, and I tell a lot of my moms, and I don't tell them to, I don't say this to scare them. I say this to, you know, one thing we've been taught in nursing school, if you can anticipate something, you're going to cope better. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I always tell people when you get to transition, that's when you say, that's when you get to the point, you don't want to do it anymore. That's the, when you get to the point where you say, I quit, I panic, this was dumb. And she was just getting to that point. She'd been up all night. She was tired. And we were like slow dancing, you know, because the husband was tired and he was getting overwhelmed. And I was like, I was like, just one contraction at a time, just one contraction at a time. And the OB was sitting in the room because we just knew any minute she was going to have this baby. And she was just getting so, so tired. And I was like, and I said, you know, just you can do anything for one contraction. Just give it maybe one more and she ended up delivering it like I said, it was my first unmedicated delivery and she like her and I were like yeah, you did it I'm so pretty like um and she was so happy and she was crying and she was just like thank you and I was like you were awesome and it was just so cool because this person pushed how they wanted to push nobody was telling them how and it was just it was just such a different experience and that was kind of one of those things I was like, wow, I was just in awe by how amazing that was. Yeah. So ah. that's probably one of my most memorable ones just because it was one of my first unmedicated deliveries. And like I said, that is part of a teaching hospital. Um, What is something that you would change? Like if you could like walk on to every labor and delivery unit and just like change um, it. Autonomy. Okay. Autonomy, autonomy, autonomy. I just, that is something that drives me insane. Like give patients more time. It doesn't have to be rushed. If a patient says they want something or do not want something, that's a given that needs to be respected. And that I feel like as a nurse is one of the stressors that I deal with is just knowing that this may not go how they want it to go. And that's so upsetting because again, a patient always has a choice. They always have the right to refuse. We just, we need to be respectful of that. And if I could change one thing, it would be, it would be doing that. Yeah. So. Um, Agree. And I would go on to say that autonomy is one of the, higher things when we study Mm evidence-based care and birth outcomes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and those that have not only good birth outcomes, but report feeling good about their birth were shown and given body autonomy. Yes. I feel like we see a lot of trauma lately or just see it in the birth world in general due to the lack of autonomy and due to the rush 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 you know i i have i have worked in places where we start this induction and hopefully you deliver very quickly and then i've worked in in a place where the inductions took two to three days and that to me is just that was wonderful and even then i felt like the birth outcome that the you know parents felt better and it was very much of you know i don't want to do this just yet let's try this and the provider was like, okay. And I'm thinking, yes, like every place do that. <laughs> I know. Your story with your nine-year-old 
in Kansas. My story Mm -hmm. with my nine-year-old in Charlotte, North Carolina, like they're very similar and they're very Mm -hmm. similar to a lot of listeners. So a lot of listeners come to the birth story podcast because they walked into the system on their first birth and they were like, I don't need to take a birth class. And maybe I read this book or maybe I did one or two things, but for the most part, they really just went on about life and pure bliss and ignorance about what the transformative experience of pregnancy, labor, birth, postpartum can be. And like anything, right? If I go try to run a marathon right now and I'm not, and I can't run a mile, like that's probably not going to work out so well for me. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm probably going to be like, I may be simultaneously proud that I did it, that I crossed the finish line, but like also traumatized by like how horrendously hard that was. Right. Versus like maybe training a little bit and it could be like a little bit easier. Um, yeah. So let's start, let's kick off your birth story with Reed. You're nine-year-old. Yeah. And at the time, you were not a labor and delivery nurse, correct, right? At the time, you were- Correct. Stuck. I was actually a hairstylist. Oh, and you have great hair, <laughs> yes. by the way. I'm like, oh, I am checking out Kelly's hair right now, and it is, like, <laughs> really good, you guys. Like, thick, full, long, like, a oh, little girl. reddish. Yeah, like, um, beautiful. So, you were a hairstylist, and mm-hmm. um, you get pregnant. And so, tell me, like- Tell me a little bit about your pregnancy and then like, did you get induced or how did you know you were in labor? Like, what did that look like going into that first birth? Yeah. So, um, I got pregnant after, you know, started trying in May. And then I think I found out, I found out on our uh, anniversary that I was pregnant in November and, um, Kind of a cool note that'll tie into all my kids is I found out November 11th. So number 11 is a little special. Okay. Um, And I was 11 days post ovulation, but I found out I was pregnant. I had nausea for two weeks and then it was seriously the easiest pregnancy ever. I'm one of those people that enjoy being pregnant. I was pregnant all summer and, you know, I really wanted that natural birth. Don't ask me why. That's just what I wanted. And again, my whole family thought I was crazy because they birthed in the 80s where they did all, you know, inductions for vacations. And But that's what I wanted. And we took just a basic class. It was didn't teach a whole lot. It was just your basic birthing class, nothing too into the woods or anything. And you mean it wasn't birthing... like how to birth with a dolphin in the ocean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then um, I got to about 30 seven weeks I think yeah it was 37 weeks and my OB this was in a small rural hospital was like well are you ready to be induced and I said no I want to go natural and again first time mom everyone's calling is it baby time yet is it baby time yet and I'm like no so I think at 38 weeks I opted for a membrane sweep and I actually remember crying in my car afterward because I was like I'm feeling so rushed I didn't want to do that and um uh membrane sweep did not work i lost my mucus plug i had some god-awful like braxton hicks and then nothing surprise and 
then at 39 weeks, I was like, okay, I'll do, you know, I just felt so pressured into it. I felt pressured for my family. I felt pressured from my OB and, um, he's like, he like painted this perfect picture. He was like, you're going to come in, um, Wednesday night, you're going, we're going to do a little bit of Cervidil the next morning, have a good breakfast. You can shower if you want, and then we'll just break your water and see what happens. And I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be great. And that is not how it happened at all. Uh, but, you know, I went in the next week. I, yeah, it's like it cringeworthy. Days. Yes. And, you know, I had only eaten since I had only had lunch. I wasn't hungry. They brought me this nasty food tray. And I'm not saying that to be rude. Like it was really, I, I was like, what is this? So I didn't eat it. <laughs> and I just, I politely declined. I was, I was like, oh, no, I'm, good. I'm still full from lunch. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have breakfast. And we started Cervidil and it was so funny because I worked out through, I've worked out throughout all my pregnancies, like literally like with my last one, the day before I was doing squats at the gym. And so it was so funny, maybe an hour after starting Cervidil, I was like, oh man, my back, it's just, it's feeling weird. And I thought, oh, I just worked out too hard. And then I took some Benadryl because I was having really bad sinus issues and so the Benadryl's kicking in, and but my back's hurting worse. And I just, I had this awful, awful, awful back labor. My water ends up breaking on its own at four in the morning. With Cervidil. I, Cervidil. In, I was going to say with Cervidil in place. Yep. Okay. Yep. So, so, of course, they take the Cervidil out. But Kelly, let's pause right there. Um, because mm -hmm. we didn't just explain what Cervidil is. So could you just, oh, yeah. so that people understand why we would need to take it out when your water broke too? Yeah. Um, so it's a cervical ripening agent. It basically, um, there's these things called prostaglandins that can help with the cervix. So say, say your cervix isn't right, I guess, you know, people, it is shown people tend to hopefully do better if they're more dilated, if they're more effaced and thinned out. Cervidil helps with that. I guarantee you I was probably luckily to be dilated to a one when they started it. Um, so that just helps soften, helps you face, helps get you ready for birth. And um, some people go into labor right away. If your water breaks, there is what they call that risk of infection. So that's why they pull it out. Um, so that's what they ended up doing. And these contractions all of a sudden just came back to back to back and pun intended they were in my back and I was not prepared to cope with back labor I didn't even know what that was I, you know here I was so so informed by my one birth class that I took and I just was not prepared for it at all next thing you know my whole family shows up to this induction stop so, it no no yes that and is not helpful now the more people in the room i'm like oh geez and so here i am i'm exhausted i had been up all night i was starving i was having contractions that were i was not getting a break i mean i probably was truly tacky sicily which means way too many contractions and they're in my face like oh you're okay you're okay and I love my nurse, but, and she knew I didn't want the epidural, but literally she got to the point where I felt like she really talked me into it because I didn't want Pitocin or anything. And so she's like, are you sure you don't want the epidural? I know you don't want the epidural, but, and she just kept going on and on. And she's like, look, 
this anesthesiologist is getting ready to be in surgery and I know you don't want the epidural, but if you don't get it now, it's, you know, you may not get it for several hours and just kept planting that seed. And I kept asking where my OB was because I kept being told this person was going to come and check and he never did. And so finally I was like, okay, I want the epidural. And we did the epidural and OB came in an hour after I was very, very comfortable. And that's when he broke a four bag. And I vaguely remember hearing, okay, start Pitocin. Yeah. So, so you guys, Pitocin. let's define four bag. And I, I'm going to let you mm-hmm. do all the definitions, Kelly, since you're a labor and delivery nurse, which means you're more <laughs> educated than I am. So will you describe four bag? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of two theories behind the four bag. The first theory is it's kind of, and of course, I'm not going to have my definitions right because it's early in the morning. But it's like you have like the two layers of the amniotic sac. So some people believe like one sac tears open and leaks out. And then there's the other theory, which I kind of agree with the other theory, is say baby is super high and there's a spot in your foreback in your waters that breaks. And then they move and the sac moves or their head comes down and it kind of plugs that hole. So your water breaks fluid comes out whether it's a trickle or a gush but it doesn't fully um i guess break break as you would think and so sometimes there's what's called a four bag so as baby moves you know you may feel head when you do a cervical check or um you may all of a sudden an hour later feel a bag of waters and so then that's where they would probably probably recommend either breaking the water say in a hospital setting or um you know eventually it could break on its own yeah and as a placenta encapsulator and i take the placentas home and i study them i do often see the two tears so i'll see yeah so i'll see the high tear and then i'll see the actual hole where they did maybe a rom artificial rupture of the membrane with a four bag like closer to the bottom of the sack too so i can actually oh, so see cool. where it popped versus where we artificially ruptured it and i'll have two yes. little holes like in the in the um amniotic sac so thank you for uh describing yeah. that for the audience so they came in and were like hey we should <laughs> pop this four bag to help you progress mhm and so, yep, they broke the four bag. They started Pitocin. I think I was complete. So 10, centi- 10 centimeters dilated. So I went from a three because I was stuck at a three to 10 centimeters dilated around one. And they had me labor down probably 430. And they had me start pushing. It was so hard to push. I literally could not feel a thing. My legs were so numb. I could not feel anything and so they when they had me push I guess I was you know I literally could not I had no pressure I had no nothing and um you know I ended up baby had been crowning for a little bit and by little bit I mean I pushed for a total of 20 minutes as a first time pusher who could not feel a thing so I would say I was doing just fine yeah and um, I was given, I had said in the beginning, I didn't want to have an episiotomy, which is where they actually cut the perineum. They don't really do that anymore, but small town hospital. And um, nine years ago. 
Yes, nine years ago. Yes. And that's, it's changed so much in nine years. It's just kind of crazy. And I was given the whole, I just don't know if he's going to come through, you know, this muscle, the skin's holding everything up. I'm just going to do a little cut. And so I ended up with a second degree tear. And hey, you know what? That's actually like not that bad for an episiotomy. I'm shocked yeah. that it was only and second was eight degree. pounds nine ounces too. Wow. So. Okay, I'm shocked that you didn't like. I've only seen. Uh, I was going through my head earlier, Kelly, when we were talking about it. I have seen three episiotomies in 20 years as a doula. Um, just yeah. not very. It's just very rarely done, and it's usually, um, the three that I've seen. Let's say were I would say necessary to facilitate yes. a vaginal birth. Right. Yeah. Um, but it sounds since like being in, in the your... teaching hospital, I only ever saw two after that. So yeah, very rare, very rare. So it's hard to know, like maybe, do you know if there was like a deceleration, if there was an urgency for delivery, if the shoulder was hold, held up or do you feel like it was just routine? I definitely feel like it was routine because um, he was born right at five o'clock and he was very, <laughs> You know, it's hard to really remember what happened nine years ago. And as a first time mom, you don't really know what's going on in the room. But I don't ever remember there being a sense of urgency. Yeah. Oh, time for dinner. Five o'clock. Yeah. Traffic. I want to go home. Yeah. So, but yeah, so he was born and I was so happy to be a mom. And like I said, he is nine years old. Um, But I I still remember after that being like, man, I really wanted that medicine. I never dwelled on it. I never had any like postpartum with, with him, but I just remember thinking, you know, if and when we do this again, I definitely want to try harder next time. I definitely want to try some different things and see what could change. Well, and as a labor and delivery nurse, you know, like there are labor and delivery nurses that will push an epidural because frankly, it makes their job in some ways easier. Right. Oh, like to absolutely. monitor you from outside of the room and mm-hmm. only really have to come in to flip your side or if they're to, to adjust a monitor. I mean, it's just a different it's a if you are a labor and delivery nurse with all of the respect, you know, um your your shift is going to be different if your patient is unmedicated yes. versus medicated. Versus a scheduled oh, yes. cesarean section. It's just a different day at work, right? Same and, same as a doula, right? Yeah. Um, my job is infinitely harder with an epidural. Infinitely yes. easier with unmedicated. And what I've heard from the labor and delivery nurses is it's sort of the opposite. Like the unmedicated is harder as a nurse and easier. Mm-hmm. Um, would you agree with that? Or what do you think? Yes and no. I think yes and no. Like I always, I am very pro unmedicated. I love unmedicated. And for me, it's, I don't know. I just love it because I'm very pro. I'll come in, I'll do my thing. And then bye. I'll leave you guys to do your thing. And then if, if things start getting amped up and the birther needs me, then absolutely. I am there. I'll be your mom. I'll be your doula. Whatever you need me to do, I will be there. And it's just to a degree, depending on who the provider could be in the situation to, to me, it, it is a little easier because the terrible it sounds, there's less charting. <laughs> there's a lot less charting to do. And 
Oh, that's um, a good point. Yeah. More hands on. But at the same time, there are some times where, yeah, if they, if they, I don't want people to get upset with me for saying this, but there are some times like if that person has the epidural, it's they relax and then we can do some position changes and hopefully have baby born in a decent amount of time. And I say decent amount of time, not for my sake of convenience, but I will say if they're unmedicated, depending where you deliver, if they're not making that change fast enough, then that's where it becomes hard because then it's like you're racing against the clock and yeah. um, that's where sometimes if they have the epidural and we can hurry up and do some of those position changes, then that hopefully can decrease that intervention. Because it relaxes that, that. yeah, because it relaxes the pelvic floor. So I see epidurals yeah. go both ways. Like the natural ebb and flow of physiological birth is that it goes mm-hmm. really hard and fast, and then it slows down, and you like, yes. and it spaces out, and everybody's like labor stalls, and I'm like, nope, it didn't stall. This I know, is normal. I'm like, it's not a stall. Maybe the body <laughs> needs a break, or maybe babies finally turned, and so now your body's gonna go, whew, that was hard. Okay, let me take a breather. Now I'm going to start up again. Yeah. So, where we, I don't, I don't, I always love the natural side for me. For me, I always liked it more, but, yeah. and thought it was a little easier, but it just, it depends. It depends. Yeah. It depends. I mean, I, what I think I enjoy the most as a birth worker is when their vision comes to fruition. And like, so if they wanted an unmedicated physiological vaginal birth and that is achieved, that is my Mm -hmm. best day at work, right? The harder Mm -hmm. days at work are are when there's a change of plans and just like Mm -hmm. having to help someone emotionally let go like you had to, Kelly, like, but it sounds like your nurse wasn't really there to emotionally help you change course, but to say like, well, I was planning for this and I really wanted this, mm-hmm. but now here I am with back labor. Now here I yeah. am, I'm going to say air quote stuck, but like stuck at three centimeters. And then, and instead of your nurse, like encouraging you, like, do you want to keep going or Hey Kelly, here are the reasons why an epidural could help you still achieve your goal of a vaginal birth. You know, yes. just could be. Presented. And sometimes I do feel like people. I know some people want to go without, and I just, as main deliveries as I done, some people do benefit from the epidural. Yeah. You've been up all night long, completely freaking exhausted. Sometimes a little bit of sleep is a beautiful thing. Or you're so tense, you don't even realize how tense you are. And just a little bit of that epidural can relax. And, yeah. you know, I've seen it go both ways. And I always remind my my parents, I'm like, you did not fail because your birth plan changed. Exactly. You know, your feelings are valid. I understand you're upset. And, you know, that is your feelings. That is okay. And I'll never say the healthy baby, healthy mom thing, because I know that really kind of downplays, but I do tell them, I'm like, it's your feelings are totally valid, but you never failed. You did not fail. And I don't ever want you to feel like you failed. Yeah. I'm like, you gave forth life, Life. a giver of life, no matter what that looks like is, is magical. It's amazing. It's a miracle. It's all of the things. I have seen it both ways also many times over. I have seen, yes. I have actually made the recommendations 
for epidural, nitrous oxide, all, all of the things. Um, oh, yeah. When my clients were looking to have an unmedicated birth, home birth transfer to epidural. Like mm-hmm. that's the big, that's the hardest one as a doula where I'm like, okay, you know, I do feel like you would benefit from a nice long nap and pelvic floor rest because for whatever reason, yeah. for whatever reason, maybe baby's position, maybe length of labor, maybe, 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 right? Um, Things mm-hmm. are so hard and so exhaustive that we're pulling up and we're holding our pelvic floor instead of fully yes. insert full surrender. And some people, you guys, some of you just do that easily. Some of you are like, like, I don't know, yogis, meditators, runners. Um, you, you don't have anxiety in your body. Like it's like something mm-hmm. you, your brain just didn't give you that. Like it gave most of us anxiety and you're just like, yeah. I mean, I've labored with so many people that are just like, no NBD like birth is no big deal and then some people including myself it's like oh this is a real big deal you know yeah um it's hard to stay in a place of surrender and relaxation for 24 hours it's just hard you know for the first timers so so kelly we're aligned our nine-year-olds we birthed them that way right we birthed them yes in inductions with medication and they're fine. That's that's yes. also something I want to tell everyone, right? Like yes, like they're fine. You know, like they mm-hmm. they have great lives. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like and like I said, he is he's great. He's seriously one of the most empathetic human beings I've ever met. For a nine year old to have the empathy and the selflessness that I'm just like wow you are nine years old and you just, that kid is going to, he's just going to really do some things. I I truly believe it. Like, again, just the way he thinks, I'm like, dude, you think way too, like you are nine and you're already thinking this kind of stuff. I know. So yes, they turn out fine. Yes. And that is something I want to encourage pregnant people to think about. Even if you have a change of plans, even if you were the biggest change of plan, I always say, is the person who's going to give birth at home and then mm-hmm. ends up in a hospital transfer and then ends up in the operating room. That's like as far away from your plan. All I can assure you, though, is that everything is temporary. You will be okay. Your baby mm-hmm. will be okay. And parenting is so cool. Like the evolution of that first moment of holding them on your chest. And now here Kelly and I are with nine-year-olds like, and it's a whole different ball game of what we're talking Mm -hmm. about, right? Like friends and emotions and schools and empathy and sports and like, I don't know. Just they grow up fast. They They really, it's such a cliche saying, but they grow up so fast. So fast and every stage is different and hard in its own way, right? Like I don't think any stage of parenting um, is easier than another stage, right? Like it's all, it's all, um, it's all fascinating. It's all fun. It's all hard. It's all, it's all lovely, but let's just leave it at, listen, if you have a change of plans and you get an epidural or an induction like Kelly and I did, like you're good. It's good. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good. So 
now you guys trigger warning. We're going to go into two lost stories before we go into mm-hmm. two more birth stories. Um, so a year later, Kelly, you find out you are pregnant again, and it's a surprise. You were not planning that pregnancy. Yes. It was a very, like, I had just started back to school, you know, I had, that's when the nurse, I was, after I had my son, I was like, no excuses, you can do this, you can be a nurse, like, you've got this, and so when he was six months old, I enrolled to school, I was going back to school, working full-time, and he had just turned a year old, and I was just feeling really weird and really sad one day for no reason at all, and I had this weird feeling to take a pregnancy test at two in the morning and I took it and sure enough it was positive and I was like holy crap I was not I was not planning this I you know and it took several months to get pregnant with our firstborn so again I was just very very shocked very surprised I was just I remember the day it happened, but at the same time, like we were very careful and trying to be preventative. So again, I was like, how did that happen? <laughs> um, so I got pregnant, but I just kept feeling like something wasn't right. And I know they say not to do this because it doesn't guarantee anything, but I've also taken enough pregnancy tests out of five pregnancies to know that I'm like, no, there's something to it. I'm one of those people, I pee on multiple sticks. I have to see that double line get darker and darker and it was just weird to me like I just had this bad feeling and that line just wasn't getting darker and so I was having a lot of anxiety and you know my husband and I just started sitting down saying we wanted to go with a different doctor we kind of talked about the birth plan we were accepting the fact that well we were not planning on a another baby right now and it's going to be hard going back to school but this it's going to work out it's going to work out and I woke up with my kiddo at it was like two three in the morning right before six weeks and um again I was just very, feeling very anxious um in fact I had I was so anxious I contacted like a pregnancy resource center about getting an early sonogram because I hadn't gotten into a new OB yet and they had said you know around six weeks is the earliest I could get a sonogram to see a heartbeat. And so I was like, okay, I just, and I was literally like counting down the days. So I was one day shy of six weeks and I woke up, went to the bathroom and there was blood. And I was like, oh no. And a couple hours later, it was like six in the morning. There was more bleeding. I took pregnancy tests and that positive line was so faint. And I remember telling my husband, I was like, I'm bleeding and you know, I, I had a cry. We, we, he hugged me and, but I just, I was very like, you got to get to school. So here I am going to school. I'm bleeding at this point. I don't have an OB because the OB I had originally with my son wasn't even practicing in that town anymore. So I'm literally calling around trying to get in somewhere. Nobody's, nobody's going to get me in because I'm a new patient and I'm not far enough along and you know, this is my first miscarriage. Like, I don't know what's going on. I'm how the bleeding much, is picking up. I was going to say, can you describe the bleeding? Because yeah. I have a lot of clients that bleed throughout their pregnancy, but yes, the volume that's... of blood and the type of blood is so different. So if, could you describe yes. miscarriage bleeding? Yeah. So it started off, it did start off a little brown, 
but it became bright red very fast. And bright red bleeding is usually more concerning. And it wasn't crazy heavy yet. It was probably it was probably between a medium and a light period with little clots, like tiny, maybe a dime size or smaller, little clots. And I wasn't feeling any pain yet. Um, there was no pain, no cramping. Finally, I called this OB's office who used to, so this particular doctor used to be in the same office of my other OB. And so because they had my prenatal records with my first birth, they were like, we can see you today for some blood work. We can get the blood work ran and we can figure out what your HCG is, depending on what your um, HCG looks like on the blood work. We could get a sonogram. We could figure this out today. So I'm crying. I'm on my way to the hospital and I call my mom who at the time worked at that hospital. And I was like, Hey mom, um, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I think I'm losing the baby. I'm on my way to the hospital right now for blood work. Please come down there and be with me. And my mom's like, what? <laughs> Cause we hadn't told anybody. Yeah. And so she meets me down. I get the blood work. And then of course I have to do the dreaded wait. Lab was behind then the OB's office was at lunch. And so around one o'clock, I start cramping. And by cramping, it did feel like mild contractions. It wrapped around from my back to stomach. I started passing larger clots, um, probably about the size of like a half dollar or more, and just a lot more heavy bleeding. And probably about 15 minutes later, it's when the um doctor's nurse calls me and was like, hey, you know, your ACG is a 10. So either you're early in your pregnancy or you lost it. And I said, look, I've been pregnant for, you know, a little over almost two weeks now. I, I know it's a miscarriage. And um, so so that was really hard. That was really hard. And my husband ended up coming home to be with me and my parents stopped by and um you know, even though it was not a planned pregnancy, it was very hard. And it was just, and it was just a terrible time, honestly, like trigger warning. My grandfather had just committed suicide. Um, our dog died, seized out on the bedroom floor. My firstborn was super sick. And then we had a miscarriage and it was just so much. And so it was, it was kind of a dark time. It was just, it was, there was definitely some depression And it was my first miscarriage. And I think what made it so sucky and so lonely was it's like people were there the first week. And then after that, it was like, well, get over it. Or, you know, people mean well, but they really say the crappiest things. Like they say, God has a plan or something was just really wrong with the baby. And it's like, you know, those just really aren't the best things to tell anybody. (laughs) Yeah. So how about so that was that one. I'm here to hold space for you. And whenever you need me, I'm here. Right. Yeah. Like it can be yeah. as simple as that. You guys. <laughs> yes. Drop and, you off know, a allow meal. the person time to grieve because they're, you know, I tell all my people who have losses, I'm like, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. And there's no in between, but, and it's, you're going to be sad. You're going to be, you're going to laugh. You're going to be angry and it's okay to feel those things. Yeah. So how long did you so, bleed yeah. for? Really? 
four days maybe like it was it was basically a light period slash spotting after the initial once things passed okay so do you so it started kind of brown it got bright red Mm -hmm. it got heavier and then within about 12 to 24 hours right you were cramping like where it was wrapping all Um, the way around yeah so like the spotting was at like two in the morning and then by one 15 to 230 was the heavy bleeding and then after that it was no more pain the pain was gone um and then it was just light bleeding afterwards so that was to me you know probably just passing okay the main now parts of pregnancy how do they make sure everything's gone do they later do a sonogram like do they check to make sure that you've passed all the tissue mm-hmm. or do you just take blood work how do you conclude yeah. Like, how does one conclude their pregnancy? Uh, I think, um, so I, every doctor I do feel is different. Um, this particular physician, they just did, since I did have the heavy bleeding and say, things seemed like they were passing on their own and I wasn't soaking, like I wasn't heavy, heavy bleeding to where I was soaking through multiple pat. Well, actually, let's not even think about it. But anyway, since things slowed down, um, the, they just did another set of blood work to make sure my pregnancy levels were dropping. And they did, uh, they did very, very quickly. And so, um, you know, that was kind of that one. And then I did follow up with my position at the time, six weeks later. Okay. And repeated blood work. So, I don't think we repeated it six weeks. I, I know we did maybe a week after my first initial set of blood work. And then since it was confirmed, my levels did drop, then we didn't, I think it was just, we followed up, we, you know, talked about the miscarriage and then it was kind of like, okay, well you can resume pregnant sex now, things like that. Okay. When did your period return? (sighs) Maybe six weeks later. Okay. So pretty, if I remember right, pretty quickly afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it was know. a little irregular for two cycles, and then it went right back into being regular. Which side note, I never had regular periods until after I had my son, so that was kind of different. Same. Wonder what that yeah. is. I think your hormones just figured I don't think it out. fixed everything, and then boom. So yeah, I had to. I tried to get pregnant, Kelly, for ten months. Yeah, ten months on. Um, now I'm trying to think of what drugs I took because it was like 10 and a half years ago or whatever. Um, maybe like Clomid and progesterone or yeah. whatever to ovulate because I just had a weird mm-hmm. cycle and was just not. So anyway, 10 months later, I finally get pregnant. And then I got pregnant five months, five months after I gave birth because, oh because I just had lived my entire life like, well, I don't really ovulate and I have to take these pills to ovulate and like, and um. Five months later, I was like, oh, uh, and I have two children, Max and Jagger, that are 15 months apart. <laughs> so it's so interesting oh, how your body, even after, a, a, like for me, that felt like a very long fertility journey, even though I know that's a short fertility journey for most people, 10 months. But then to just spontaneously get pregnant without even really trying, um, I think our bodies are just like, more tapped in more tuned in 
after we have pregnancies. So what I do know is that after we give birth and after we miscarry, we are become hyper fertile and we drop eggs like crazy. So there's a lot of multiples yeah. and things like that. Um, when did you get pregnant again? After that miscarriage? So I didn't get pregnant again until January of 2018. Okay. Because you weren't trying, um, right? Yeah. Like we weren't, we had talked about trying, but we, I don't know. It was just a very weird time, to be honest. It was a very weird time. Um, well, you were in so school. You had a lot of trauma. I was in, yes. And I was, I actually had, okay. So I had some crazy issues with my hormones. So literally a month before I started nursing school, I came down with shingles on this, on the right side of my face. Okay. And um, long story short, I ended up getting a steroid shot because my eye was almost completely swollen shut. So I was put on antivirals. I was given a steroid shot. She, my doctor said, Hey, these are the side effects of steroids. I said, that's fine. Do what you got to do. I can't see out of this eye. Next thing you know, my period, like I, like, and like I had said, I had had irregular periods. Then I had my son and they were completely regular first time in my life. And I was not worried about it because I had just ovulated. I'm one of those people. I ovulate 14 days later. There's my period like clockwork. And um, wasn't worried about it. Next thing you know, I am bleeding every single day for on and off. Like I would bleed for 14 days, get two days off, bleed again. So I bled pretty much on and off every single day for till September. So from July to September, I was bleeding like crazy. Were you um, so anemic? I don't think so. I mean, uh, if I was, I never got checked out. Yeah, I was like, oh, gosh. I mean, that feels like a lot of blood yeah. loss. Yeah. Fight or flight with nursing school. We, it was, I love nursing school, but literally they said, say goodbye to your life, say goodbye to your family. You don't have time. <laughs> so I, I didn't have time to, but I had lost 10 pounds. It was crazy. Next thing you know, I quit bleeding. I don't get a period anymore. I gained 15 pounds. And then it just knowing like cervical mucus and fertility, it just wasn't there or it was so scant. So something was off. And throughout this journey of being in nursing school, I'm trying to get a doctor to listen to me. I'm like, my hormones are off. All of a sudden I have like this crazy intense mood swings when I, after I ovulate, I'm having hot flashes. I'm not having cervical mucus. I'm not getting a period maybe every 80 days. And they're like, oh, it's nursing school. It's nursing school. And I'm like, okay, well, I ran a half marathon um, two years before I had my son. And during my miscarriage with the suicide and going to school, I still had a regular period. And all of a sudden you're saying because of nursing school. And so that's when I decided to leave that one OB and that's being um, called so the, gaslit peeps. Yes. <laughs> and I had never, and what was crazy is when they did do blood work on me, everything was quote unquote normal, but it wasn't normal in my cycle. So I had just, so if that, I don't know if that makes much sense, but basically I had just ovulated or I was ovulating that day, but my estrogen was in the level of someone who wasn't ovulating. My progesterone was, I can't remember where it was. Something else was at menopausal range. I mean, it yeah. was all over the place. But if you look at the pre-menopause, post-menopause, ovulatory, like that's how it was normal. Yeah. Because it was normal in those ranges, but the overall picture 
It was not. So this is where I say go to functional medicine for a second opinion, especially functional medicine who specializes in hormones. I'm just bringing this up, Kelly, because I don't know what they have in Kansas. But here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we actually have this amazing group. I don't even know if I should say their name, but there are a bunch of OBGYNs that I actually used to work with in labor and delivery, and they stopped doing obstetrics. They went back to functional medicine school and then yes, they opened. they're like, here's a pill. Let me right. take it on birth control. And I'm like, no, that's a Band-Aid. Yes. So now they do both, right? Like they're gynecologists practicing, mm-hmm. but they also have degrees in functional medicine and wellness. And their whole... Like everything they do is so cool, but it's all focused on hormones and balancing hormones from your thyroid to your glucose levels to inflammation. I mean, there's so many different causes. So did they ever get to the root of what was going on? They never did. I am still convinced it had something to do with the steroid shot. Like I have been told there's no way, but I'm like, is it though? Because this literally all happened from the steroid shot. Um, my new, new, my current OB does think maybe there was some kind of inflammatory response. He, he definitely did not. Granted, we haven't had this conversation in a long time, but I remember he was the first person that ever I felt like listened to what I had to say when it came to this is what happened. So that's, so anyways, that's kind of how we got pregnant again is we definitely had not been preventing for several months, but I also wasn't having much of a period either. Um, and during that time, I had tried Vitex to help with my progesterone, and it did help a lot. And then I weaned off of that. I tried the keto diet, and that actually made things a thousand times worse for me as someone who works out a lot. It, it just did not work out, excuse me, for me. Um, so, yeah, uh, 11 days post-ovulation. Number 11, um, I found out I was pregnant. And so, you know, I'll never be, you know, I was excited. I was like, wow, you know, here we go. And this is going to work out so good because I'm graduating with from nursing school here in a few months. Like, this is, you know, this is going to work out great. And, um, you know, Around that time, I had just started finding out about my current OB and he, this person being very pro-patient autonomy and very pro-natural. And again, that's what I wanted. Um, and that's when the anxiety kicked in. You know, I'd had a miscarriage before and it's just, I don't know. It's almost like a PTSD effect. Like it just very panicky, almost felt like I just couldn't breathe and, um, just every little twinge, you know, the more kids you have, you feel those cramps a little bit sooner as, as your uterus grows. And, um, I was just, just constantly anxious and on edge, you know, it doesn't help being in nursing school, but I was just constantly anxious. Um, and those pregnancy lines were darkening just fine. But again, I was just not, I was just freaking out. Um, they did do blood work at my primary care and everything looked fine. And eventually I got in for an ultrasound at my OB's office. And I will say this, I don't know if the sonographer was new, if they were a student, if they saw something I didn't, but it was the most bizarre ultrasound I had ever had. So I go in, I get an ultrasound 
And this girl's being very weird. She won't turn on the screen. She won't let me see anything. She won't even talk to me. Like I said, she may have been a student. And I'm freaking out. Like, here I am freaking out already. I'm maybe seven weeks. And she's, like, not letting me see anything, hear anything. And she's, like, says, um, I can't remember. She said something and left. And I was, like, well, is everything okay? And she's, like, yep, things are fine. I was, like, well, was there a heartbeat? Like, what did you even see? And she was, like, yep, there's a heartbeat. And she was so weird. And so, of course, I left that um, appointment freaking out because she wouldn't even let me. She wouldn't even turn it on the big screen. Like, I literally that is was really just sitting weird. inside. It was the weirdest ultrasound. This Honestly, is it was where, so crazy. Kelly, I'm going to pause, though. Yeah. If anybody finds themselves in a situation like this, like, as hard as it is, you got to leave. You got to walk out that door, go ask for the office manager, ask for an OB, ask for a different, just ask, you got to advocate for yourself. Like, yes. these are the opportunities where you have to speak up and say, I am not leaving here without seeing my baby's heartbeat. And I want pictures and I want the video screen on. And if that cannot be accommodated today, I'm going to come back tomorrow, you know, like, I mean, we can't go backwards, but I'm just trying to help. If someone else finds themselves in a weird situation, you guys get out of it. Reschedule. Yes. (laughs) 100%. So, yes, no, I 100% agree. And, you know, she finally gave me this picture and it looked like this little like worm. (laughs) This little, and she said the heart rate was a hundred, which of course, again, I'm anxious because she was acting so weird. And at the same time, seven weeks with the, yes. And I was like seven weeks and it's only a hundred. And so of course I'm freaking out. I'm freaking out even more. I'm crying. I can't breathe. I'm having a panic attack. Something's just not right. Um, I call my OB's office and, um, they called me the next day and they're like, you know, Dr. Sonso did agree that it seems a little low. And so, of course, here I'm like, oh, crying. And they said, we could wait a few days, and then he could perform the ultrasound for you. Because I told them what happened. I told them my experience. And they said, you know, he will do it. So this is my first time ever meeting my OB, which I absolutely adore this person. I think so highly of him. He's just you know, he's getting busier and busier. And I know he's, he just, he's a great person. And I hope he listens to this podcast to understand like how respected he is because he's a busy person. And I side note, I feel like he's feeling the stress lately of being busy in healthcare, but he really is a good person. I just hope he understands that. Anyways, first time ever meeting him, we do a bedside ultrasound and heartbeat was like 143. So now it's tears of joy. I'm so happy. And, um, he was just, Again, first time truly meeting him, very nice guy. And he was like, you know, we could do an ultrasound again in like a week um, just to make sure things are going fine. And then the following week, I would have an appointment with him. Well, I felt so good. I ended up canceling that ultrasound, which maybe it was a good thing. And then I go in to have an appointment with him. And this was right before we again announced it. So... I should have been getting close to 11 weeks or right at 11 weeks. And he puts the Doppler in my belly. We can't get anything, which again, that's still early. Sometimes you can't Doppler that early. And he said, you know what? Let's just go do an ultrasound. So I'm like, yay. 
and we are doing ultrasound I see the baby and I was like wow this baby's gotten so much bigger I can actually see a baby this time it doesn't look like a little bean and I remember him like highlighting where the heartbeat should be and hitting the button and nothing dead silence and so he very quickly gets out of that highlights again hits the thing dead silence and he sits back and he says, I am unable to find a heartbeat, which is very concerning. And I'm just like, boom, punched in the face. My world is just like, it's like he's talking to me and it's just, I'm in a tunnel at this point. And, you know, he's given me options of what do I want to do? You know, he said, I think we should try to get you in for a more, um, more in-depth ultrasound you know we don't have the capability of doing it here but i have to make some phone calls and so um at that point he finally found a hospital that was like 25 minutes away i don't know maybe 45 minutes from closing so i i had to hurry he's like they can do an ultrasound tonight and i was like yeah let's do it tonight because i'm not going to be able to sleep so here I am on the way to this other hospital. And he was so sweet. He was like, I will be there with you. You're not going to do this alone. I will be there with you. We will figure it out right then and there. Wow. And like, yeah. Again, amazing dude. And I was like, okay. So here I am rushing to this hospital, which is all the way out West. And again, I've, I've got to get there because they're going to close soon. And I'm calling my husband and I'm like, the doctor can't find a heartbeat. And I need you here, but you're not going to be here on time. And, you know, just this panic in my voice. And so he's calling my parents. He's trying to get our son picked up. He's trying to rush all the way to West Wichita, which is just way farther from where, from where we live, about probably about 45, 50 minutes from our house. And we get there. They send me back. My mother-in-law actually met me there because I was alone. And the doctor comes in. They do an ultrasound, and I don't remember looking at the screen. In fact, I think I don't know if they put it up or if I looked away. I don't remember. And she, um, those sonographers shows me my baby, and it's a really good profile close up of this baby. And she said, "But I can't find a heartbeat." And basically, given the measurements, baby had died like four or five days before my appointment. And so um, that was just absolutely heartbreaking. I was just crying my eyes out and. My husband finally got there. And what really resonated me with this doctor was um, he, like, my husband, I have our moment. He had stepped out, let us have our moment. And then he sat with us for like an hour and talked with us. And that was the first OB I had ever had that said birth control is a band aid, it's not a cure. And he seemed like the first person who actually wanted to help figure out what my hormones were, who wanted to help me have a successful pregnancy. And so he actually, introduced me to what's called napro technology which is where you use cervical mucus progesterone and things like that to help with finding out fertility and um once they're short into that because it was what's considered a missed miscarriage so the baby dies but your body you know my first miscarriage i started bleeding i passed everything on my own this one my body still since i was pregnant you know that morning i was still having morning sickness so we ended up opting for a cytotech induction, I guess you can say, which is basically it kind of forces your body into having this miscarriage just because I was finishing up with nursing school. 
And for me, the trauma of not knowing when I was going to start bleeding and passing this baby was just, it was just building, it was just adding to the anxiety. So your options I'm hearing Mm -hmm. were go home and at some point your body will recognize that the baby is not growing anymore and you'll miscarry on your own. Second option, side attack induction Mm -hmm. did they offer you a dnc yes and at that moment um i didn't for whatever reason i didn't want a dnc and we went over and we basically went over the risks and benefit of all three you know the risks of waiting for you to miscarry is it may not and then you're at risk for getting very very sick Mm -hmm. um you know the risk with side attack is bleeding and then the dnc and for whatever reason, I, did, I didn't want the DNC. I, I don't know why. So after giving it a few days to think about it, um, you know, I was really sad. But again, I just felt good to know I had a provider that actually seemed like they wanted to help me. Yeah. I did go ahead and opt for the side attack. And that was just a terrible day on its own because just knowing it's like I wanted to hold on to that pregnancy so bad. You know, I like me being in control of losing that pregnancy was just, you know, it was a hard time. And I remember placing the side attack and my husband stayed with me all day and I just cried all day. And at one point he took me to lunch and it was probably about five hours after placing the side attack is when I started bleeding. Um, Cramping too or just bleeding? No cramping, just bleeding. Um and so, and that was at the restaurant. So of course I went to the car and started crying some more. So he took me home and held me. And it was maybe 15 minutes after getting home, I passed a baseball size clot. And I, and it just slowed down. And I thought, oh, maybe that was, maybe that was it. And, um. Cause baseball is very big. So, very big very big not not okay (laughs) and then later that evening I was just having like a medium flow period with no pain and I just remember thinking wow this was completely different so at that moment we go to my parents house just I needed some extra support you know we had told them we were pregnant and so they were there for us and it was when I was sitting down eating dinner with them I start feeling contractions and very mild contractions and a little bit later, I just feel this weird urge down down low. I just feel this urge to kind of push. And so I go to the bathroom and I push. And when I pull my panties down, there is, and it, it is a trigger warning, there is this baby. And I was not prepared for that. You know, with my first miscarriage, it was just clotting and bleeding. With this one, it was actually very visibly a baby there was eyes there was hands there was I mean it was I saw this teeny tiny umbilical cord and it was so traumatic and I just cried and cried and cried and I just held this baby and I just was again not something I wanted to see and then I was like what do I do you know I don't want to just bury him bury this baby in a yard for us to move and um we ended up buying like a plant and like planting the baby in the plant. That way I had this plant forever kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, later that night, I I did start soak, you know, 
I always tell my patients, if you start passing clots the size of a chicken egg or larger, soaking through more than one pad an hour, you need to get to the ER. Well, sure enough, that was happening to me. And in the back of my head, I knew something was wrong, but I was just so grief stricken and so in just a terrible moment that I just couldn't bring myself to do anything about it as, as dangerous as that was. And I just wanted to sleep. I just wanted to close my eyes and basically not wake up. Like that was just kind of, again, just so grief stricken. And thankfully I woke up the next day, the bleeding wasn't that bad, but then throughout every couple of days, I would start passing large clots and bleeding again. And by the time I'd go to call my OB, it would slow down. So then about a week later, um, I started having some breakthrough bleeding again and heavy clotting. And this is going to sound weird for whatever reason. I, I just felt like I needed to check. Don't ask me why. I just felt like I needed to check my cervix because it was just weird. I was passing all these clots and there was something hanging out. And so I called my OB's office. They called me back. They said, that is not normal. Get to the ER. And that's when we found out I had retained placental fragments. And so it was causing me to continuously bleed. And at that point we decided it was, and I was starting to get symptomatic at the, at that time I was feeling pale. My heart was racing. Um, I would, I definitely had lost quite a bit of blood throughout that week. And at that time I was literally just passing these large, large clots soaking the table in the ER and you know, God save that man. He, my OB on his day off came in on a Sunday and was like, I, you know, what are your thoughts on what we should do? Would you like a DNC? And I was like, absolutely, let's do this. And um, so we did a DNC that completely stopped the bleeding. They got the placental fragments out. And um, after that, I just, um, that's when, again, major grieving process at this point, because now I'm several weeks away from graduating nursing school. I thought I was going to have a baby. I mean, there's just all these emotions. Um, but on the horizon, that's when I was just getting ready to start as a labor delivery nurse. So. Well, that's horrible timing for pain and yes. grief and trauma and processing. Um Kelly, I am so appreciative that you have taken the last hour plus to share about being a labor and delivery nurse and about your son, Reed, and about your two miscarriages. And so yeah. we're going to move into part two because this episode oh, yeah. requires the trigger warnings. And then part two, Riley's your rainbow baby. Yes, and that and was my then, healing birth. Like it, it truly was. Clayton's birth was great too. Don't get me wrong, but from going through such trauma to her birth, it was so good. Oh, <laughs> it I'm was so, good. so excited. So everybody, please stay with us. Click on the next episode, which is part two with the birth stories of Kelly's rainbow babies. Okay. Until then, we'll see you in a minute. Just keep listening. Go right to the next episode. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like. 